Hi, Hi everyone. everyone. I'm John. And I'm Georgia. And we're here inside your ears to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. This, this is Comfort Films. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Comfort Films, episode 48, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. This concludes our straight-to-the-sequel September series. We are in October, but, you know, we got to finish out the September series. <laughs> you know how it is. Yeah, you know, it just spilled into, you know, October, but it's fine. It's the spilling series. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, we're always happy to go back and meet up with the Jones boys. You know, this is always a really fun adventure for us. We also really like calling them the jones boys when like <laughs> sean connery's in his 60s at this point i love uh, that you know or what was he late 50s he was born in 1930 so if this came out in 1989 wow 50s late 50s for mr connery yeah he was only 12 years older than harrison ford yeah. so initially he didn't want to do the movie but then he jumped on board and we were all very grateful that he did yeah thank goodness he did because i don't know for me this is actually my favorite of all the Indiana Jones movies. I know that's probably a little weird. I think most people are Raiders proponents. I'm, it's tough. I'm a very big Raiders fan. I'm not going to say that I'm not. But when I look at this film again, it's like, ooh. I mean, you really got me with the, the father-son relationship. Yeah. They do a great job with a strained relationship that works out in the end. And how could you not love that? Yeah, and Sean Connery is such a character in this. Mm -hmm. And he's so funny. Like, I just think this is one of my favorite things he's ever done. And we watched a ton of Sean Connery movies, so that's kind of saying something. But I just, I feel like he's funny in this in, like, an effortless way. And it's really interesting to me to see them bring in a new character that just fits into the whole thing so well. You know, because the thing with this about it being a sequel is this is a sequel in a way that kind of the other sequels we've watched weren't necessarily. Um, this one kind of is episodic because the Indiana Jones series is episodic. It's not like, you know, we're watching the middle part of a three-parter like with Empire. No, it's episodic like another series that we'll talk about <laughs> exactly. later. Yes. Um, but it's episodic, so everything is kind of standalone already. But if you're already an Indiana Jones fan and you're familiar with Raiders in particular, then you're going to get like all these little callbacks to the original movie that just kind of enrich this and make it more fun. And that's what I love about it. Like to me, this was kind of the perfect wrap up for this character. And I'm not going to say like, we're not glad he's coming back, you know. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy he's you coming know? back. We've been it's, lost without him. It's always good to see more Indiana Jones. Yeah. But this particular movie for me is like just excellent. I love it. If I'm just going to sit down with a, a movie from the Indiana Jones, you know, canon, I guess, I probably am going to pick Last Crusade because I, I just love Sean Connery as Henry Jones so much. He's absolutely perfect as Henry Jones. And the other thing that really sets this apart for me is the inclusion of the incredible River Phoenix. Of course. Uh, you know, River Phoenix playing young Indiana Jones at the beginning of this film. When we watched it, you know, it's about the first 10 minutes that we have River Phoenix as young Indy. We wanted to keep going with that story. We wanted to see the whole thing with River Phoenix. He's so riveting. Yeah. His Harrison Ford slash Indiana Jones is absolutely perfect. It's 
spot on. Yeah, I mean, Harrison Ford recommended him because he said, you know, this is the kid that looks the most like me when I was that age. And also Harrison Ford and River Phoenix famously worked together in the Mosquito Coast where River Phoenix played his son. Yeah. So it, it's like you brought these guys together again, and it, oh, it was so good. I mean, they don't have any on-screen time together because they're playing the same person. Yeah, I mean, they're sharing a role. Yeah. So in one way, it's even, you know, a deeper kind of screen sharing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think the whole part with River Phoenix kind of explains so much about Indiana Jones in such a short time. Yeah. That it's just super fun and... River Phoenix is perfect. I mean, we've we've sung his praises before. Mm-hmm. Um, in our episode 17, we talked about Stand By Me with River Phoenix, and he was fantastic in that. So if you just need more River, float on back to episode 17 and listen to that one. Yeah, Chris Chambers is a character that I never forget. No, he's, he's like the heart of that movie. And he's a perfect start for this, you know. And I think, you know, you're not the only one who really loved this young Indiana Jones, <laughs> right? Because they started the series of that mm-hmm. afterward. Um, and they wanted River Phoenix for that, but he didn't really want to do television. So he ended up not going on with it. But uh, I never watched that show. I don't know if you did. So. I did watch it, but it was on at a weird time for me. I only was able to see one or two episodes. I remember having an old VHS tape that was like the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. You know, anytime I could catch it, I would totally be on board because I loved the series. Sean Patrick Flannery played Indiana Jones and he was cool. And what's also cool is when you look back, all of the guest stars that they managed to pull down on that show. Yeah. You know, it's, again, ties into something we're going to get to later. (laughs) But, um, you know, when we look at the very opening with River Phoenix and getting this history, it shows us everything that we need to know about Indiana Jones. What do we need to know? This is a guy that takes his artifacts seriously. He wants them in a museum. You know, he is an adventurous guy, and he has a drive to do the right thing. This is a guy that will do the right thing no matter what the cost. He will not give up. Even though he's just a kid in this, he goes up against some pretty tough customers. Yeah, and the police, right? right. So, I mean, he he has to do what's right regardless. That's his thing. He has a moral code, and he's going to stick to it even if nobody around him does. Yeah. Even if it causes him trouble to do that. Um, I thought that was really cool. We also see, you know, that he got the idea of, like, his outfit yeah. from this other kind of adventure archaeologist that we see here and we see the genesis of his fear of snakes well that and that's done incredibly well yeah you know i mean i i didn't remember just how wonderful this sequence was so there is a chase sequence and they are on a moving train they're on a circus train and they're jumping from car to car and the camera is following alongside the train so it's almost like an old video game scroll (laughs) you know you're seeing them go you know they're going from right to left and you're just like wow what is next and they're chasing indy and i mean he faces a rhino horn that comes up between his legs (laughs) threatens his manhood and the manhood of the kid that's trying to take him down too i mean that's a scary bit right (laughs) there you know that's when you hold your breath and go i am so glad i'm not in movies (laughs) you know i mean young 12 year old me you know definitely would have had that and then you know we go through and then he ends up being pursued by this main archaeologist who has you know scruples that really could be better let's be honest um 
you know, he's a guy that's in it for the money. He's in it just for the, the fortune. You see, that's the thing. Indiana Jones tells us later he's in it for fortune and glory. That's not really true. I, I feel that Indiana Jones is in it for the glory of it being in the museum and say, hey, I got that there. He isn't in it, I feel, for any type of monetary gain. That's not his aim in this. And so when he actually is being pursued by this guy that, you know, he ends up dressing like this archaeologist, he ends up falling through the roof of the car and into a snake pit. So he's covered in snakes, has an absolute panic. You know, I, I can really understand that. It's not snakes for me. One time I, I spilled a bunch of lemonade in my aunt's house and I woke up in the morning and um, there were ants all over me. Mm. Uh, yeah, like I, I could see ants, then I pulled back the, the blanket and there were ants all over me. Oh, boy. Exactly. For, for so, me, it's cucarachas. Oh. Same ooh. kind of thing. Oh, man. Not because I spilled anything, but I was. my mom was going to make brownies, pulled mm -hmm. down. We lived in like a housing project. It was very not clean mm. in the other apartments around us. We had roaches all the time. She pulled down a baking pan from above the stove. It was filled to the brim with with cockroaches, and they just rained on me. And living yeah. or dead, living or dead. They were dead, uh, but I don't care because yeah. it was still horrific. Yeah, yeah. I hate them. Mm. I, you know, when we lived in Massachusetts, we didn't have to deal with this. We moved to California. Suddenly, these satanic creatures are in my life again and i was very unhappy about that and if i see one i just want to burn down the entire apartment block and just you know die with it whatever you know i hate them so much i mean we went to the san diego zoo sorry total sidebar went to the san diego zoo one time and they had like this insect house and inside the, like, right inside the door, the first thing you see when you open the door is this display case in front of you that has cave roaches oh, in yeah, it. Yeah. And they're about five inches long. And I could have just died right then. Like, I'm surprised I'm alive to tell you the horrifying story. I guess because they were behind glass, I tried to suck it up and move on. But I, I can't even think about that without getting a little shaky. So I think we all have our things. Yeah. You've got an ant thing. I've got a roach thing. Andy's got a snake thing. Yeah. And it was funny because he held the snake at the beginning of the movie. So, you know, he's talking to the other little kid and he's like holding one snake. So if it was one snake, it was okay. But then when he's like in a, in a pit of snakes, a pit of we snakes. have a problem. And of course... Yeah. Daddy Henry has a problem with rats. So. Yeah, I like it that it's a family tradition that everyone <laughs> has a specific phobia. Yeah. I, I really, really do I love enjoy that, that too. It's really funny. I mean, for me, it was like, you know, I love this because, you know, I'm a 12 year old, you know, I, I'm in Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts. I can't remember which at that point, but it, it's all the same. We know what it is. And, and I love that stuff. You know, I love getting the badges. I love going to the meetings. You know, I, I had such a great time. And you would have this book where you had to complete all of these amazing adventures. And so it, it was like, I don't know, it was like a ticket to be, you know, Indiana Jones. I, I love that. I love that about this movie. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, and then he ultimately ends up, in this room, in this, you know, circus train with a lion. Now, this for me, I, I, you know, it's something that when I was older, I I had a, 
a very personal experience that, that I'll explain. Mm-hmm. That makes it sound a lot heavier than it is. But anyway, <laughs> so uh, Indy is in the car. He's in this train car with a lion. And, you know, lion is scary. It's terrifying. And on the wall behind him, he sees a bullwhip. So he takes out the bullwhip and he starts, you know, cracking the bullwhip. And, you know, the lion goes back. But as he's doing it, he actually hits himself in the face with the whip and it draws blood. And this also is something else that that builds up the history because Harrison Ford has this scar on his chin that had never been explained. So this actually, this beat right here brings it back. I mean, we found out how he's scared of snakes. We found out how, you know, he loves adventure, no matter what the cost, right? Justice. Yeah, I mean, crazy. So what happened to me years later is I was in college and I was in a production of Waiting for Godot. I was playing Estragon. The character of Pozo had a bullwhip. So the bullwhip came and all the guys in the show were just really fascinated by this bullwhip. You know, everybody wanted to be super cool and be tough and crack the bullwhip. Was so, it because of Indiana Jones? Like you all kind of wanted to play Indiana Jones a little bit? <laughs> I'm sure we all wanted to, but it wasn't spoken. You know, it's, you know. Well, you're too cool to say it, but that's really, that was probably it, at least for some of you, I'm guessing. I would have said it because you know the type of person I am. I, I'd let it all hang out. <laughs> for me, it was like in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, this is a skill I could pick up. And, and you know, I was actually thinking what would be great is if I had like a whip and I was out somewhere and I needed to cross you know just this empty space and so I could actually use the whip to you know hook onto something like he does so often and swing and over. swing across okay. yeah that was my that was my fantasy to I cross mean, a chasm you know because you're in that situation so frequently right <laughs> when does that come up that's like when people were like when I was a kid I thought that this would come up more yeah well you haven't ever had to cross the chasm and needed a whip for it I'm guessing no but I did have woods behind the house uh, as a kid and we had so much fun in there and I'm sure I probably mentioned it on the podcast before but we had this enormous sand pit that was probably I'd say I don't know. It, it's funny because when you're a kid and now you're old, I don't feel like the dimensions are going to no. actually be accurate. <laughs> but I feel like I would say that the base of the sand pit was probably, let's say, about uh, 20 feet around. And I would say that the actual walls of the sand pit were probably about 20 feet high. Okay, um, Because the reason I would say that is what we would do is it almost was like a Sarlacc pit, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we would always play Star Wars when we were kids. And, you know, we'd play Indiana Jones. We'd play anything. I mean, again, I think that's really one of the reasons that I was so interested in acting is because everyone I grew up with loved movies and we loved acting them out. Yeah. You know, so what we would do is we would, like, run. It, it's crazy. The sand pit was in the middle of an old cornfield. Um, yeah, I know. Isn't this crazy? So weird. This is Massachusetts. You can find, <laughs> uh, you know, Native American arrowheads in this cornfield. That's how much history was there. And then there was the sand pit. So we would run from the cornfield and just kind of jump into the sand pit. Yeah, we were nuts. And so, you know, the walls, you know, they weren't just straight. You know what I mean? It was like a, uh, an incline. So you would jump and then kind of tumble and go down. However, I mean, it, we were like, it's sand. We're safe. 
So, you know, we absolutely love that. I mean, we actually found an old foundation in the woods and there was this whole thing where, hey, let, let's make this into our fort. So we cleared it all out. You know, we made it really nice for ourselves. We had like some magazines and some sodas. We set up a clubhouse also in the woods for no reason. In the middle of it was barbed wire under a bunch of leaves. Exactly. What kind of woods were we living in? Yeah. And then we had a creek and then, you know... They later, you know, drained the area. They had these really loud machines. It was kind of marshy in places, and they drained it so that they could uh, develop the area mm. more. So that, that was thanks, kind of. It did, but you know, it well, and we also had uh, these bushes that had blackberries and raspberries that grew on them. Oh, that's so cool! I know. So it was like I had like this adventure kind of place. That was our our playground. So. Yes, I always wanted, you know, to have the whip. And I was like, oh, maybe if I was in the sand pit, you know, I could like <laughs> hook the top and, you know, go up. So I am in Waiting for Godot in college. Everyone's fascinated with this bull whip, which is for the character of Pozo. All of us start trying how to learn it. And so I get on board with trying how to learn it. And the way that you're supposed to do it is you're supposed to take the bull whip and then you're just, you know, kind of with your wrist, you're kind of supposed to like lay it out. Okay, so you get the, the, the full length of it out. And it's pretty long. You know, I was really surprised. So you get the thing out, and then it's kind of just a, a movement of your wrist. You know, it's almost like a wave, right? Mm -hmm. You come up, and then you come back down. And I wasn't trying to make any big movements because I was just trying to learn how to use it. You know what yeah. I mean? On a basic level. But, you know, just like many a young person. I got cocky with it after a while and thought I was kicking ass. So I tried to do a maneuver, very similar to young Indiana Jones, very similar to what River Phoenix does in the movie. And the bullwhip came and hit me in the chin and actually drew blood. Oh, wow. So you had like a young Indiana Jones moment, but we can't tell because you got to cover it up. I actually, I mean, I don't even think I have a scar. I could be wrong. Like, I've been in bike accidents a bunch of times. I've just been in a lot of, like, foolish accidents oh, that get scarred. You're jumping into sand pits like a maniac. <laughs> no, but I don't think you have a chin scar, so no. you made it through unscathed. I do have a chin scar on the bottom from, like, a, a bicycle accident. Like, I came down off my bike and I landed on my chin on the pavement. Mm. Yeah, that hurt pretty bad. I have one from tripping on a carpet and falling into my bed frame and hitting my oh, chin right in it. Oh. So that's a lot less cool than a bike accident. Tripping accident. That's what all my scars are. Oh, I trip. Well, for me, I mean, the stupidest scar that I have, and again, I might have revealed it here. I might not have. But you see, I've always had an imagination. And I saw Olympic divers on television. <laughs> and I thought, hey, you know, if I fill up the bathtub, I bet I could just dive into the bathtub and it would work out. No, it, it, really, it really didn't Did work. No, huge scar on my head. I mean, I was very young, so you can't really see it. You know, in a way, you know, for a while there was kind of cool, because vaguely, not nearly like the same, but vaguely looked like a Harry Potter scar. You know, <laughs> I didn't funny. hold off, you know, any ancient evil or do anything super cool. I just jumped in the fucking bathtub but oh, yeah you know, that's how it goes man so yeah i i've got a, a ton of scars so yes i loved the opening i loved river phoenix i thought he was the coolest 
And it was good because it was like someone my age was in the movie and he had that adventure. And it's it's very unfortunate that we didn't get to, you know, ride with him yeah. further um, because, you know, his life was, was short, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I think that the beginning of this movie starts out super cool with that. And even before that, this time, I had a different reaction because... Um, right after, you know, the mountain, the Paramount Mountain right. fades into another mountain like it did in Raiders and actually in Temple of Doom, sort of, a little bit different in that one. Um, but in this one, it does kind of the same thing. Uh, it's Arches National Park is where they're shooting. And we went to Arches. Yeah. In September of 2020, uh, so <laughs> I didn't really realize when I'd seen this, and I haven't seen this since we went, that they shot this in Moab at the beginning. So they're, you know, riding in front of all these things that I have pictures of, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, that's Moab, how cool. So I was pretty psyched up about that this time. It, yeah, it was great because I was like, wait, that looks familiar. You yeah. Know? It, it was, yeah, that was a great vacation. But I remember this. I was feeling like really sick. And it was like, it was supposed to be like a hiking vacation. But I just kind of was in the car a lot. And then I'd <laughs> see Georgia walking in the distance. I got out a few times. It was, it was a weird trip. So we have a lot of pictures of me. <laughs> In front of Arches taking selfies <laughs> oh and John God. is in the car. Uh, but it's still, even if you're just driving through there in like the scenic drive, it's really nice. There's like a, a formation called the Three Gossips that's on the road into the park. And we saw them riding horses in front of that in this. So it was super cool. The locations in this movie are insane to me. Like they shot yeah. this like everywhere. And that makes it super cool. And this is just like the first of many awesome locations in this movie. It, there, there's so much. And I think at this point, I'm going to dive in to what we've been holding back on. <laughs> so what we've been holding back on is that, you know, we realized when we watched this and we read about it as well, that there are major parallels between Indiana Jones and James Bond. Steven Spielberg always wanted to direct a James Bond film, and it just it didn't work out. And George Lucas, his best friend, how awesome is that? That's his best friend. <laughs> you know what I mean? They can like build worlds together, literally. <laughs> I you know, know right? right? Like they'll just do that for fun. We just built that new planet just well, for hey, fun. Yeah. We built a podcast that we're in forty-eight episodes of. Ba boom. So and we're besties. Yes, so, we are. You know, it's good to be best friends with somebody who shares your interests. Yeah, it, it's super cool. And, and so George Lucas said, you know, hey, you know, we can you can do something even cooler than James Bond. And so they tried to out James Bond, James Bond. You know, they had this archaeologist character and, you know, they brainstormed and they were like, OK, this is you know, this is what's going to happen. And so we take a look and Indiana Jones goes around the world just like James Bond. Mm -hmm. The Indiana Jones series has an incredible, incredible, iconic theme. Definitely. Right? Just like James Bond. Right? We also have, you know, him facing off against these massive, terrifying Nazis. Right? And James Bond was always facing off against Spectre and the KGB, these huge global 
organizations. You yeah. know, they're they're going the same way at it. Both of them always had a lot of lady friends, right? <laughs> well, that was, that struck me this time. Like, it was in the first three Indiana Jones movies, there was, like, a different love interest in each movie. And that's very James Bond, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he falls in love with a different woman in every movie until you get into the Daniel Craig stuff. But, you know, I'm just saying, as general rule, there's a new chick every time. Yeah. And that's what was happening here, too. Um, and I would, as a big... MBTI goober, I would point out that James Bond and Indiana Jones are both ISTP personality types, so introverted, sensing, thinking, perceivers, which means basically that they're like gifted at, you know, physical and mechanical type things. Um, They're thinkers and they're quick on their feet to adapt to situations. Um, and they kind of are self-contained, so, like, they don't need to work with a partner or have a team or whatever. You know, he does, Indiana Jones does kind of have a bit of a team of people that he works with, but it isn't like, you know, he can't function on his own. And most of the things he does are on his own, which is kind of what's fun about this, because he is kind of forced to work with his dad, and the two of them are very, like, different, yeah. Like, I think I would probably characterize Henry as an INTP instead of an ISTP. So they have a similarity. But whereas Indiana Jones is more about interacting with the environment, uh, Henry is more in his own head. You know, he's got his diary where he's drawn out all the stuff. He's brilliantly schooled in grail lore. You know, he knows more about this than anybody else. And it's something he's really dug into and become an expert on and he you know but he's very self-contained in the way that he works and it's almost like you know nobody else can touch what he what his work is you know he loves that work though both of them really love their work so they have these similarities but because their personalities are kind of at odds it's hard for them to see how they are similar yeah it's so interesting when we finally see how they are alike because the film does a wonderful job of showing us why they're at odds. Yeah. You know, from the time that, you know, Indiana Jones is a kid, his father didn't really have time for him. His father was just fully invested in his study, you know, fully invested in his research. The police even come to the house at the beginning of the film. He does not even ask him about it. Yeah, he just doesn't even want to hear it. He's busy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's what made kind of Indiana Jones into the person he is, to some extent at least. And that person is a very James Bond-esque, you know, adventure character. Well, and he also has, you know, a bit of a chip on his shoulder, just like James Bond. You know, like in this sense, it's like I'm on my own. I have to do it myself, you know, and and that's there. But I'd say the biggest thing between James Bond and Indiana Jones that's different is the moral compass. Definitely. Because we have Indiana Jones, who we've already mentioned, just wants to do good. And James Bond, you know, he just kind of wants to do whatever he feels like. Yeah, I mean, I think that I would still say it depends on which Bond we're talking about. Yeah. Because different actors portrayed it kind of in different ways. But I think you could make a case that, like Indiana Jones, James Bond kind of has his own moral code. Mm. And, you know, it in a different way, it's it's 
that's kind of divorced from a lot of different things. And I think that he is a lot more flexible <laughs> with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do think Indiana Jones kind of has his own moral code that, you know, he's not respectful of the law, per se, you mm -hmm. know, because he doesn't think it's right. It's more of like a, a neutral good kind of alignment right. where he, you know, has his own belief in what's right and wrong. And that's what he sticks to regardless of what's legal or, or not, you know. Um, and he definitely has a major lack of respect for authority, which is funny because in some ways he is an authority being a professor at this Barnett College. We see again, you know, we saw that in Raiders and we see it again here. But he, when it comes to like legal authority, like police or like the Nazis, for example, yeah, um, he doesn't have a great deal of respect for them, which makes sense, at least where the Nazis are concerned. For sure. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Well, James Bond, if we're looking specifically at the Sean Connery James Bond, when I think back on that, yes, he was gruff. Um, he still did not like authority. He wanted to do things his own way. So, yes, I guess we are really back to Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones wants things in a museum. James Bond wants the bad guys done away with. That yeah. That's it. I mean, that's that's what they're looking for. And <laughs> this is funny, you know, because James Bond, you know, he'll go undercover and, you know, he'll do it in more of a suave way. But when we deal with Indiana Jones, he always manages to take out a person that's a size or two smaller than him. <laughs> and that's really pointed out, you know, when he has like that waiter's outfit on yeah. where they're on the Hindenburg. And then, of course, you know, when they're in Raiders, the Lost Ark, we see it. It's a running gag. Yeah, the submarine yeah. guy. That one was hilarious. It was so good. And then we also have, I mean, the absolute lousiest attempt i guess we could call it a going undercover is when he does the scottish accent oh my heavens and he says he's there to inspect the tapestries <laughs> i mean that's i mean that's I, hilarious i'm glad that the guy like immediately called him out and was like there is no way just stop it's also great to note that sean connery just gets to be scottish he just gets to be who he is you know, because there are so many films where you just like Sean Connery, so you're like, oh, it's cool to see Sean Connery, but I am going to point out Highlander, yeah. uh, you know, when he, uh, Sean Connery played Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez. No. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. I think I literally said no. Like, when we watched the movie, yeah. I was like, who thought this was a good idea? Like, the movie is called... Highlander. And then they have a French man playing. And you have a Scotsman guy. in it. Yeah. But you don't have him playing the Scotsman. You have him playing a Spaniard. Uh, and then a Frenchman playing a Scotsman. What what are you thinking? It's nuts. I I almost can't I mean, I kinda like that movie, even though all of this insane <laughs> crap is going on. Yeah. That is like trying to make me think it's awful. I don't know. I like the campiness factor, I guess. But, yeah, good point. I love it when a Scottish person can 
be a Scottish person in a movie and just talk the way they talk. Yes. And not have to do some kind of accent that kind of pulls you out of it. Well, Sean Connery, I, in my memory of Highlander, I don't even think he really does an accent, I don't thank think he God. Did either. But it's just like. He kind of never does. No. But it's just like, so, okay, I guess this is just the alternate universe that we live in well, in this both, movie. Right. I mean, he's a great actor. Christopher Lambert, a great actor. But, you know, it, it's just like know your strengths guys it's, like there are things i can't do you know what i mean it's and uh kinda yeah. like it's kind of like when i was in that play for your <laughs> oh yeah i was in a play that john's theater company directed back in i don't know oh one right and it was me and another girl and i was supposed to be from new jersey <laughs> and she who was from new england was supposed to be from alabama so, I don't know. That didn't really make a lot of sense, but we made it work. Well, we made it work, and it's, you know, you're right. I mean, I guess that's it. When you have talented people, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, think but I, it's crazy. I, mean, I got rid of my accent-ish during Look, this. you, like, I remember what your voice used to sound like, and I know how it changed over the course of the show. Yeah. You were great. I just shit on Highlander, you know, for doing <laughs> this madness you know, with with, <laughs> with the people that they cast in these roles. And I did the same damn thing. I did well, the same damn thing. It but happens. I still think it's less egregious. <laughs> I still think it's less egregious well, than the Highlander. I agree because everybody knows Sean Connery is from Scotland. Yes. I don't think you can just look at me and know I'm from the South. Oh, and also, I do want to point out, and this is important, I still do love Highlander. I'll watch Highlander all the time. I think it's an amazing idea. I've watched all the movies. I oh, yeah. am on board. My dad loved it. it was, he loved the TV show, even he was watching the Highlander I show. I never did the show. Yeah, he loved it. He I heard always it watched it. Yeah. So, yeah, that reminds me of my dad a ton. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's back to this Bond thing. I mean... I think in this movie, they've gotten to the point where they're really just hanging a hat right on it, yeah. you know, just saying, like, this is definitely a, a James Bond homage, because they bring in all these actors who've been in James Bond. Yes. You know, we have Allison Duty, who was in A View to a Kill, mm -hmm. as Jenny Flex, when she was name. only 18 years old, by the way. Wow. Um, Julian Glover was in For Your Eyes Only. Mm-hmm playing Christados. Thank you. I knew I was going to not remember. Oh, that's okay. Um, yeah, we have um, John Reese davies played Pushkin in Living Daylights. And, of course, we have Sean Connery, who played James Bond. He was the, the first James Bond. So, I mean, they couldn't have James Bonded more. And I think you mentioned Pat Roach as well. Pat Roach was in Never Say Never Again, which was, this is a fun connection, Never Say Never Again was directed by Irvin Kirshner, uh. the director, of course, of Empire Strikes Back, which we just did. And in Empire Strikes Back, we had Harrison Ford as Han Solo, and we also had Julian Glover, a.k.a. Walter Donovan, as General Veers, the evil man that we thought could, you know, take at the distance. And, yeah. And in this film, they give him the chance to take at the distance. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Never Say Never Again. We have Pat Roach in that film, and he faces off against Sean Connery. And that was when Sean Connery came back to the role, yeah. kind of outside of, like, the broccoli 
Productions kind of grouping. It's kind of like a rogue <laughs> Bond movie, right? Right. Well, because there was a whole thing about Thunderball. And there was debate over ownership of the property. Mm. And when it was finally all settled, you know, what happened is Never Say Never Again was able to be made. And it's very close to Thunderball. Mm. And it's this massive, massive production. So when Never Say Never Again came out, it actually went against a broccoli film, Octopussy, hell of a name, uh, with Roger Moore. So, you know, it was like... <laughs> Bond versus Bond. Yeah, there there was so much, you know, with this. There was, uh, they couldn't use Blofeld in the Broccoli series anymore because the lawsuit. Spectre couldn't be used. Th- there so was a weird. lot. Yeah, yeah. So Well, and I remember reading that, like, uh, it was funny because the title came from that Sean Connery said he would never play James Bond again. And his wife said, never say never. (laughs) So I don't know if that's true. That could be like apocryphal. I think that's true. I actually read that his his wife, Sean Connery's wife, was credited. Oh, wow. Yeah, if I'm I'm not mistaken. I've never, like, you know, checked the receipts on that. But that's what I read when I looked through. So it's funny that all these people are just running around, you know, the, the same area you know all of these films i mean pat roach how many movies he has he been in pat roach has been in willow which we talked about you know he was in uh clash of the titans he was hephaestus oh yeah and willow he was kale you know we had pat roach of course in raiders of the lost ark he's the he's two parts in that he plays one of the people in nepal i guess Mm -hmm. and then he plays the big dude that gets chopped up by the airplane yes yeah which is gross and i'm still like a little cringy when i think about that scene it's crazy and then (laughs) he also shows up in temple of doom oh yeah again you know facing off against harrison ford another gruesome end for mr roach in that film you know so it's like we just have so many so many so many movies that are connected Now, the other thing that we should talk about is that, yes, we had the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles television show. And, of course, the lead role was offered to River Phoenix, as Georgia mentioned. It went to Sean Patrick Flannery. It only lasted, I think, around 21 episodes. I I did like it, but didn't get to see it much. But the point there is we have even more Bond people that showed up on that. Okay, so we had Jeffrey Wright who was Felix Leiter in the Daniel Craig days. Mm. Okay, we had Daniel Craig himself showing up on an episode. And then, of course, we had Jerome Crabbe, who, you know, he was the, the evil general in The Living Daylights. And he also showed up with Harrison Ford in The Fugitive years oh, okay. later. Yeah, all of these connections. And then, you know, when there was The Hunt for Red October, it was a Jack Ryan film, and we had Sean Connery in it. Jack Ryan in that film was actually played by Alec Baldwin. But in the next film, Patriot Games, Harrison Harrison Ford Ford. is Jack Ryan. So it's like everything we've got here, you know, it's like we've got a real mix of, you know, players. And then we have ILM all over the map, of course. course. I mean, and they're brilliant in this once again. I mean, the Walter Donovan disintegration is just a single shot. It's crazy. Yeah, we saw, you know, some behind the scenes footage. And it's these really creepy, creepy robotic puppets. Oh my god, it was so creepy. And it's yeah. kind of yeah, it's it's kind of animatronic, 
and it kind of like moves and it looks alive like it was gross it was super nasty (laughs) there were three different robots that they used you know creepy looking moving lifelike zombie robots (laughs) that they used uh for walter donovan and, you know, then, of course, you know, he turned into dust. But, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's insane. That was one of the biggest challenges of the film was to create that sequence because Steven Spielberg wanted it done, you know, in a single shot. Yeah, and it does look really awesome. Like, I would say that it kind of holds up with, like, the face melting in Raiders. Yeah. Um, and it has that kind of a feel to it, too. Like, I think that was probably achieved with stop motion. And this was like this animatronics, but it looked amazing. And, you know, it's, it's a really interesting end, like that whole end sequence in the Canyon of the Crescent Moon, which is actually Petra in Jordan, which is a real location. It looks like that, like carved into this mountainside or, you know, canyon side. It's amazing. Mm. And uh, that whole scene is like really awesome, you know? Like, it really brings things up a notch in a movie that has been going, like, on all cylinders the whole time. You're like, how are we going to do this? And they do it, like, in a neat way because it's not all, like, super action. Once they get into the canyon, Jones has to follow, like, the steps that his father found in St. Anselm of how to get to the Grail. And it, it, you know, there's still some swashbuckling and and somersaulting and things happening but you know the leap of faith scene which for me is kind of the most crazy scene is not an action scene it's just he steps out into what looks like a huge chasm and he you know steps onto this optical illusion walkway and it's just ridiculous and that was an ilm uh, effect as well yeah, because we saw he just kind of stepped down onto just some planks. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, the ILM people, wow, hats off every single time. And again, just back to that Walter Donovan disintegration, they actually used that morphing technique that we saw in Willow. So yes. they had these three different robotic puppets and they put them together with that and then went into dust. Incredible. Yeah. I, I don't I yeah, I don't know what else to say other than incredible because yeah. Well and it's interesting the way that Walter Donovan goes down, you know, it's like it's not in a fight. Mm-mm. He makes his own choice and his own choice is what gets him. And that actually goes back to Raiders also. Because the choice to open the Ark of the Covenant is what kills everyone. Oh, look at you. That's, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. They, they, you know, Indy's been chasing them the whole time, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's gone through all of these things to get to this point, And we're at the end and the people take themselves out. He doesn't have to vanquish them. I mean, you know, he still has to escape, in this case, a crumbling cave or canyon. Right. But he, you know, doesn't have to actually have a showdown at the end. No. Because the bad guy takes himself out, you know. And it's in a very Shakespearean way. It's like the whole Merchant of Venice scene with the caskets when Donovan and Elsa come into this chamber. So Indy gets there first. You know, he finds this knight who's been guarding this for hundreds of years the grail confers immortality 
the novelization kind of gets into this a little bit more detail because I had questions about yes, this. Yes, you know? I did too. I did too. So I looked it up and I did a lot of background reading and the novelization kind of gets into it more and explains that you have to keep drinking from the grail like every day in order to maintain your youth and immortality. Hmm. So the he couldn't bring himself to do it every day so he has become very old you know at this point but he's been down there for hundreds of years he's still alive and he's guarding the grail until someone vanquishes him well indy comes in and just kind of startles him and he gets knocked over and kind of concedes that that's his defeat you know and and kind of passes the torch to indy as the new guardian of the grail this is when Elsa and Donovan come in and they're like agog at this grail being within their grasp because they've been fighting for it the whole time. And there's all these grails lined up on the wall and they have to choose one. He can't tell them which it is. So they have to pick one and Elsa says, let me pick. And she chooses this gold one with all these jewels encrusted into it. And Donovan says, oh, yes, this is certainly the cup of the king of kings. So, obviously, Donovan has never read Merchant of Venice, or he would be aware that all that glitters is not gold. Um, in that play, uh, Portia, uh, who's the kind of the main female character, is bound by her father's will, and by will, I mean literal written will after he died, that she has to marry whichever person passes this little test that he's devised. And the test is that he has these three little caskets, which are kind of like a jewelry box, I'm assuming. Um, and each one of them kind of has a message on it. There's a gold one, a silver one, and a lead one. And, you know, they pick one of these, and if they open it, and if there's a picture of Portia inside, then they get to marry her. Well, unfortunately, all these guys are complete idiots, so <laughs> they keep failing, um, and we see two of them who fail before Bassanio comes in and picks the correct one. The gold one has an inscription that says, Who chooseth me shall gain what many men desire. You open it up, and it's like a picture of like a skull, and Ooh. it's talking about death. Okay. Uh, the next one is a silver one says who chooseth me shall get as much as he deserves and in that one there's a picture of a fool and then the third one uh, the third one i don't know what it says but <laughs> it's basically lead and it's like unadorned it's plain so nobody ever picks this one but then bassanio comes in and he picks it and it turns out to be the right one because the whole idea is that you don't want to marry someone who is just in, dazzled by beauty because beauty fades and what's inside is what matters. So that's how that goes. But yeah, again, Donovan is just one of these idiots who was dazzled by shiny things and he ends up paying the ultimate price for that. <laughs> he sure does. I mean, he's so stupid. You know <laughs> what I mean? He, like, is in charge of this whole expedition, but he is such a fool. He knows nothing. No. Nothing. I mean, to trust Elsa, first of all, dumb. Yeah. To not have your own idea, you know, that maybe we wouldn't have this poor person. I mean, Jesus, how many times in the New Testament... Does it talk about how a rich man can't get into heaven? You know, so you really think Jesus would have been like, get me a grail that is, like, fantastic looking. Make it gold. 
polish it up, put all the jewels on it. That's what I'm going to use at the Last Supper. Get a grip, guy. And you base a decision that can cost you your life on this? Do your reading. Do your reading. I want to know, like, who hired Donovan, you know? It's like, let's find the least qualified man possible. (laughs) You know, this this guy I don't even think is literate, you know? (laughs) I don't think he has any idea what's going on in the world. I think he just wears a suit. Yeah. And he thinks that by doing that, he'll be good to go. I guess a lot of other people didn't do their reading either because they just see the shiny dude and they're like... This is the guy, right? But he's not. So Elsa chooses, and I think, you know, we're to believe that she does this on purpose. Yeah, that's Um, what I always go. Yeah, that she chooses incorrectly this jewel-encrusted gold one. And when Donovan drinks it, he's down. He's out. He's made the wrong choice. Or as the knight says, he chose poorly (laughs) it's very understated performance and i love it and then you know uh indiana jones goes to pick and he says this is the cuff of a carpenter and picks kind of a simple unadorned cup i mean it's kind of looks of wood although it does have some gold on the inside and of course he's right you know he picked the simplest one instead of being dazzled by the riches which wouldn't even make sense you know and and they say, you chose wisely. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was really cool. I enjoyed that we had kind of this Merchant of Venice callback because it's a really simple idea, you know, that you can dazzle the idiots with gold and silver and jewels. Whereas, you know, if you have somebody that looks past wealth and riches, they're the ones who are actually going to find the true wealth of the grail. You know, and it dawns on me again that we were doing another grail related movie because we did the fisher king back in episode 23 and that's a movie that both of us love a ton a ton robin williams and jeff bridges it's really really good mercedes rule yeah oh she's so good at it michael Um, cheater yeah yeah it's a wonderful movie amanda Plummer. yes um and it really circles around the whole holy grail legend as well in quite a different way so it would be kind of fun to do like a grail triple feature and have three completely insanely different movies Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Fisher King, and Monty Python and the Holy Grail that all revolve around the Grail and could not be further away. They're like the three points of like an equilateral triangle. They're as far away from each other as they can be. And I think that would be a super fun trip each. I'd be all over that. Yeah, we should check it out sometime. Yeah. I mean, I really think that's amazing with The Merchant of Venice. I never... I never would have put that together. I mean, it's Shakespeare, so I'm sure he got it from somebody else. I just don't know who. So it's like an old fairy tale, almost. Well, lore, mythology, I mean, that's what gives us these really wonderful stories, you know. But what I want to say is going back to the same, you know, trial sequence in The Last Crusade. Now, this is the end of the original trilogy, And I feel that it actually, this sequence mirrors the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. When we're in Last Crusade, there's a guy that goes up first, and, you know, it's only the penitent man will pass, 
and he doesn't, you know what I mean? He doesn't pass. He walks up. We see like some cobwebs moving. We think maybe it's a ghost and, you know, his head rolls out, right? And I feel that that guy is like representative of Alfred Molina's character mm. in Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's the Tipo. Yes. Yes, because, I mean, it's different. This person just went to try to <laughs> go through the challenges. Alfred Molina was a jerk and was greedy and just left Indy to die. So much different. You know, again, greed kills. I mean, so it, it ties in, you know, with Walter Donovan. Because, yes, of course he would think that this gold and jeweled cup you know, was was it. Because, of course, it is. Yeah, you know? because that's the kind of person he is. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, he's uh, hungry for, you know, wealth and status. And he's just looking for the grail for his own means, which is, you know, to give himself eternal life and him be the most powerful. You know, he's, it's one of these, you're lying down with dogs, you're going to get fleas kind of things with uh, Hitler. You know, he's just working with Hitler to get, you know, the resources that he needs to get the grail. But he's not going to give it to Hitler. He's going to keep it for himself. And that's what he says. Well, I mean, again, and I'm, I'm jumping. So when we take a look at the character of Walter Donovan, okay, he is a turncoat. You know, he makes Indy think that he's on the level and then mm -hmm. he's with the Nazis. The character that Julian Glover plays and for your eyes only, his name is Christados, and he seems to James Bond like he's on the level, he's an ally, when he's actually the main villain. Oh. So that's that's the reason that I bring that up. So it's just like Julian Glover, you know, takes care of it. And also, Julian Glover is the only person here to get the trifecta, right? Oh, he yeah. had James Bond, he had Star Wars, and he had Indiana Jones. So, And I would also like to point out that he played Grand Maester Pycelle in Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. who was also a person who was supposed to be like this upright, outstanding human and is actually a piece of crap. <laughs> so that's just Julian Glover, man. <laughs> that's his that's his stick, bro. Gotta watch out for this dude. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. Okay, I'm going to do it this time. You're going to do it. I'm going to do it. So what happens here at the end trials, again, really mirrors what happens in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But the major difference is, is that Indy makes it through all the trials without any further complication. For example, he gets to the statue. He gets to the idol in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he has that bag of sand and he has to make sure that it's evenly weighted. So when he pulls the idol, that the bag of sand will be just right. And we have this great shot of him, like, really, you know, thinking it. And he takes out a little sand of the bag. And, you know, and it, it sits for a second. And then, you know, it sinks. And then at that point, we have that massive boulder that he's running from. In this case, he's got his father's knowledge. I feel that his father is less impetuous than Indy. I would say that's the big difference, and he has everything planned. He has everything down. But it's very similar. I mean, again, we have in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, I mean, of course, they have, like, all the, the spiders. Ew. Okay. Ugh. Yeah, right? We, Nobody's we... afraid of that, though. Everybody's fine with that. No, they're fine with that, but they have to cross, <laughs> you know, they have to cross a chasm right? Mm -hmm. They also have all those arrows that shoot at them. Yeah. And again, it's like, if you remember in the floor, 
that is what would trigger the actual arrows. Oh, yes. And that's like the Jehovah spelling out thing here. Yes. And again, it's borne out because it shows that, again, the father is, is more learned than the son because he doesn't think of the proper way to spell Jehovah. Yes, at first he tries the J, right, and he almost crashes through the floor, and it'd be over. Yeah, you know, but he then remembers after you know the floor starts crumbling that it's an I in Latin instead. So, and at the same time, we flash back over to where Connery is with Marcus, and he's like saying that it starts with an I, and he's concerned that Indy won't remember. Oh yeah, I mean, well, it's it's crazy here because they actually combine two of these things that were in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because, okay, we have these floor triggers for the arrows, and we also have the chasm that they cross. So this this puts the two of them together. That's really interesting. I didn't really think about that. I didn't combine that together. It's That's, that's what's so fascinating. Again, the way it all weaves together. But Last Crusade does something, you know, that isn't happening in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is there's a time clock on it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes, because... Uh, Henry has been shot. Mm-hmm. So if they don't say, you know, if, if Indy can't do this, not only, you know, does he fail, but his father also dies. Yes. So it's there's a high stakes situation here. It isn't just about getting that idol and making sure it goes into a museum. Well, and it also ties in with the theme that's running with Indiana Jones. So in Raiders of the Lost Ark, he gets out with the idol. Belloc is there, takes the idol from him. Right. And then what do we have at the beginning of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? He gets Coronado's cross. He gets away with it. And, you know, he's going to make sure everything is done properly with it. And then the bad guys show up and they have the police. And so he has to turn it over. Yeah. Okay. We have this film where his father's been shot. He has to go get the Holy Grail. And then he's going to have to turn that over to the bad guys. Yeah. You know, so, and, and that's, you know, and that's how it goes down. It's crazy yeah. th- how they yeah. loop it together. Well, but in this case, the bad guy aced himself out before <laughs> we even get to that. But Elsa's still there. And Elsa takes herself out as well because she says, you know, we've got the grail, we've got it. And then she goes and crosses the seal. That's a very, the Elsa character, I mean, I want to take a moment and talk about that. The Elsa character I find very complicated in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason that I love the film, and and tell me if I'm speaking out of turn, it be, I think you will feel the same way, that you love the film is because of the relationship between father and son. That's the yeah. driving force in the film. For sure. And so we have Elsa, who is a Nazi, okay, and when they're trying, you know, when Indy's trying to escape with his father, you know, she, you know, tricks him into giving away his weapon to save her because she's being held hostage, yeah. you know, by a Nazi. And he's like, oh, I don't want Elsa to be hurt by a Nazi. You know, Henry, the father, is like, don't do it. You don't know, trust her. She's yes. one of them. Like. He's telling him, don't do it, but he doesn't believe his father. You know, he he just thinks that his father is being like an emotionless old bastard again, right. like always. And kind of like James Bond. Yeah, but actually his father knows something about this woman because he too had a relationship with her. 
which is kind of hilarious and one of the funniest things for me. Like, I just find Sean Connery so freaking funny in this movie. Mm -hmm. And it's like these little things that he does that are so funny. Like, you know, when Harrison Ford, like when Indiana Jones then asks him after the scene, like, how'd you know she was a Nazi? And he's like, she talks in her sleep. And Indy, like, swings around to look at him, and he just gives this just sheepish, yet also shit-eating grin. <laughs> and it's so funny, because, you know, Indy is just like, why? Because he thinks that he has this huge love story with this Elsa, and it turns out, you know, she's already been with his dad. <laughs> right. Well, that's, I mean, that's what's so interesting. So, I mean, we have that. Right. We have that happening. So it's like we have a betrayal. OK. And the, the two men could have died. Indy and his father could have died. OK. Yeah. That could have happened. She definitely is aligned with the Nazis. There's nothing there to make us think that she is a good person. Mm -hmm. And so you're like, OK, so this person is just a bad guy. You know, that's the end of the story. Then he runs into her in Berlin. At the book burning scene. Right. Yeah. And so they're there at the book burning scene. And then he's like, all I have to do is squeeze because he's holding her throat, you know, because, you know, he, I don't know, was subduing her. I mean, what the hell do I call that? I well, don't... I think he's just, yeah, I don't think he's going to kill her. I just don't think he would do it. But he's trying to be like, uh, you know what? Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, it's like, uh, right, I guess. I don't know. And it's like, and he's like, all I have to do is squeeze. And you're like, Jesus Christ. And then she's like, all I have to do is scream. So then you're like, wait a minute. So she wants Indiana Jones to succeed? Like, it's, it's, that's that's where it gets weird for me. Well, she could scream and bring everybody down on him before right. he could kill her. Right. But, you know, it leads into their, you know, she, she tells him she's also crying. Mm -hmm. um, but she's crying because of the book burning. Because right. she doesn't believe in, you know, the destruction of knowledge that hurts her, you know. And, again, we see that she is, again, like a Walter Donovan type who, you know, is willing to compromise her mores and her code in order to get what she wants, mm -hmm. but she doesn't really believe in Nazism. And I think that this could possibly be partly a Spielberg choice. The reason I say that is because, you know, we have this love interest who is a Nazi, and, mm -hmm. you know, Steven Spielberg is Jewish, when they shot this movie, he had everybody who was doing the Heil Hitler cross their fingers behind their backs. Yeah. Because, you know, it, it you know, bothers him intensely. Absolutely. Yeah. Which, well, you know, it would. Yeah. To see these types of things. And, and the so, fact that they got these, I think, authentic yeah. Nazi outfits, the costume people found it. I mean, that's the scary stuff. I mean, I couldn't imagine, like, you, you go to work and then you're just surrounded by people wearing real Nazi outfits doing the Heil Hitler salute. Oh, yeah, Jesus. it's very uncomfortable, yeah, to say yeah. the least. And you also have this love interest who is aligned with the Nazis and mm -hmm. we're supposed to like her somehow and be sympathetic to her. So it has to be something where she's not just a Nazi spy, but she also has, like, a different dimension to her. And, you know, I think that if she didn't, then 
we probably couldn't root for Indiana even like for because he still really cares about this person yeah it's very it's a very tortured relationship that is extremely uncomfortable again when we go back to the castle and they're tied up the Nazis want to kill both of them. The Jones boys. Yeah, the yeah, Jones boys. The Jones boy. boys, they and, say. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, don't kill them. We need to make sure that we actually get the grail before we do it. So you can take that at face value. Or again, it can be another one of these. Wait, does she actually? I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's that's something where it keeps being played. She says to Indiana Jones, you know, believe me, I'm sorry or whatever. And you're like, what? What? You know, yeah, she's difficult. She's difficult to like. You know, this is definitely not a Marion Ravenwood. No, you know, no, like Marion was great, she was awesome. You know, we never had any complicated feelings about Marion, but no. this character of Elsa is difficult, um, because she is definitely a bad guy, like, even if she is trying to help the Joneses. In different parts of the movie, even up into the Grail choice for Donovan, yeah, she is still tainted by her association, and that's why she has to go down at the end. And you know, she's all she's all that she cares about is getting the Grail and getting it out, and she cares about that, and she's so hungry for that that it blinds her to everything else, and that brings her about her own death. What's really crazy is Elsa, I feel, gets Indy to feel the same way. Because then, you know, he ends up trying to reach for the grail. And his father's trying to pull him up. And he's just trying to reach for it. And it's just like he's in this trance mm -hmm. that he will not let go. He doesn't want to let go of this power. This is a very, very frightening moment. And it actually takes, you know, Sean Connery to call him Indiana, not once, but twice, to get him yeah. to let it go. So it, it's a very big moment, and it shows how, if you're around someone that has this lust for power, you know, it can really it can really bleed off into you. Yeah. And it's it shows you the lasting evil of Elsa. So it's a very strange character. I, I, I don't... It's done wonderfully by the actress Allison Duty. That's yeah. that's not where I'm coming from, but it's just it's a character that I don't like no. because it's just like I don't. I know she's a Nazi because I've seen it a million times. You know it. Most people do. We know she's a Nazi. So when he's getting together, when Indy's getting together with her at the beginning, you're like, oh man, don't do it. Yeah. You know, I'm not buying like this romance. And one of the things you pointed out is she kind of looks like Allison Duty looks like. One of the Hitchcock women. Yeah, she does. I mean, I think that there's probably no mistake in that. But at the same time, she also has like that classic, like, Aryan perfection look that, you know, Hitler was a very big proponent of with the blonde hair and blue eyes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that she, but she really does like have a Grace Kelly adjacent kind of look. So she's this beautiful woman, but I feel like that's the only thing that she has that attracts Indy to her. And it doesn't maybe make sense to me in light of, you know, what we've seen in Raiders, for example. Well, again, it goes back to James Bond. If there is a person with a heartbeat, 
<laughs> you know, true. he is there. And so, true. you know, he seems to be just really impressed with her looks. That That's what I get. Well, and she is smart. You know, she does go with them down to the catacombs. Right, right. She's certainly willing to take a rat in the hair. <laughs> Or well, two, or 28, or however many there are that are, like, biting her. That's really creepy and gross. Well, Kathleen Kennedy said that the, you know, the women in the Indiana Jones films absolutely had it the worst. <laughs> you know, because they just would go through all of this abuse. You yeah, know, Every true. single one of them. And it, it is harsh. I mean, there are some really rough environments, you know, in these first three films. Yeah. You know, when you look at it. The rat one is really nasty, though, because they're also in that just janky, disgusting water. And mm. I just, there's a lot of nasty going on yeah. in this particular scene where they're in Venice, you know, to look for the, uh, the first crusader and, and get the shield because it has like the inscription on it um yeah that's a crazy scene and honestly it was the venice thing that really made me think of james bond i think that's what put me in mind of it and i didn't know all of this background until after we after i had said it and you had read up on a lot of things about how there's a lot of commonality but i think i was thinking about casino royale uh, which we talked about in episode 18 and that ends in Venice. Um, so I was just thinking about Daniel Craig and Eva Green in Venice. Sure, sure. Uh, and we have the scene in Venice here at the earlier part of the movie where they're finding the remaining part of the inscription. And when they're in the library, X literally marks the spot of where <laughs> yeah. to dig, which at the beginning of the film, Indy says X never marks the spot. <laughs> All of the things that Indy says at the beginning of the film when he's in class you know, are, are proven to be, that's you know, really incorrect. That's really funny. I actually didn't notice that. So yeah. That's really funny. So when they're underneath the library when they're in Venice and they're looking for Sir Richard's tomb, there were all of these rats. And this was very interesting because rats carry disease. So they actually had to breed, yes. you know, 2,000 rats to make sure that they were completely clean. And then... When everything got set on fire, they actually had mechanical rats. Yeah, the mechanical rats looked really real. Like, you can go on YouTube and find, like, this old making of from the time that this movie came out. And it gives you a lot of really fun information. So if you have an extra half hour hanging around and you're interested, go check that out. But one of the things that came up was this was this rat thing. And then, in addition to this, I also read that... They had to insure the rats because they had, you know, you know, they had bred them for this purpose. And I'm sure that this cost money and all this. And so they actually had to agree on how many rats they could have and not have. So if like any of the rats were destroyed, they had to have like a rat deductible. <laughs> so like up to X number of rats was acceptable loss. And then beyond that they would be reimbursed for the cost of the rats. I thought that was insane, but I think that everything went okay. You know, they had, like, the mechanical rats for the burning scene, um, and, but they looked very real. Like, they showed us these mechanical rats, and when they're in the water, like, swimming, they look like real rats. Well, when we're on the subject of the old switcheroo, with animals from this it's you know real rats and then robotic rats we also have the seagull scene oh yeah mm -hmm. okay so when we have the scene where henry senior 
takes his umbrella and he's opening it and closing it so that he can send all the seagulls at the Nazi plane, which then crashes. The seagulls that they had, you know, just wouldn't go, you know, on cue. I mean, they actually have some footage of them getting ready to go and they're all fired up and they just can't get these seagulls to move. They just, they don't care. So then they realized, okay, we're going to have to come up with, you know, a new game plan here. So what they actually did is they covered the beach in fake seagulls. And then when it came time for Henry Sr. to open and close the umbrella, what they did is they had some doves, you know, that they released because they can train doves. And they went up, and then there was this guy just, like, throwing feathers. Yeah, I was laughing because I was like, what is that guy's job title, you know? (laughs) Feather dissemination specialist. (laughs) I mean, it was really funny. And, yeah, he's like, you know, Sean Connery's running at them. The funniest part, though, was that footage of them trying to use the seagulls because, you know, they have like these kind of little boxes, I guess, and the birds, I'm assuming, are in there. And it's time, so they like pull the cover off so that the gulls will just shoot up out of there and nothing happens. And they just start laughing. Like Steven Spielberg just like falls onto the ground laughing because it's such a mess. And I think at one point or that, he's like, maybe we just leave this part to George. (laughs) He's just going to put it on ILM to do. Um, But then they figured out the dove thing and it worked out. But I, that was a hilarious part of that making of documentary. Yeah. It was, it's just great how they do these things. And Steven Spielberg talks about how he likes the ways of old Hollywood. He likes the old effects. He likes having people that are the best of the best of the best. And he definitely has them, oh, yeah. you know, every single time. And when you see these achievements and you see how it comes together, and even looking at that scene with the dubs, when we knew what happened, it looked really good. Yeah, it looks great. You wouldn't think about it twice, really. Nope. I mean, it's really funny. And then, yeah, I mean, they this is like an old style kind of movie, too. Like, it's meant to, to be like the old serials and things like that. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, Star Wars was. So, in that respect, sticking with kind of these old ways makes a lot of sense. Well, to wrap up the James Bond point, the other things that we have here in the Indiana Jones films is that the films themselves, like you just said, are episodic. Just like James Bond. Yes. So you don't need to watch them in order. You can just jump in. And also in these films, you know, namely, I would say with Raiders and then Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, we catch Indy when he's at the end of a mission. And this is just like James Bond. He's wrapping up a mission. You know, we have that great action sequence. We go into the song and then we do the movie. Yeah, I'd almost call it like a cold open. Like they have the scene that they have your your opening really has nothing to do with the rest of the movie most of the time. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like in medias res, you, you come in the middle of the action, you see him kind of doing this quest, and it's either, you know, completed or falls apart or whichever. <laughs> and yeah. then we move into the meat of the story, and that's just like a James Bond movie structure. Well, actually, in Raiders of the Lost Ark and Temple of Doom, now that I'm thinking about it, both of those objects actually put the entire film in play. Mm. Because, you know, what do we have there? Why does Indiana Jones, you know, travel by plane to India? The whole reason is because he's trying to get away from Lao Che. Mm. 
and, and and that's just it's a product of you know this whole shootout that they have at Club Obi Wan. Um, the other thing that is interesting to point out there is I, I can't believe they have the balls to call it Club Obi Wan. <laughs> just a quick note. There. I love it's awesome. <laughs> also, you know, going back to James Bond, we talk about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Harrison Ford is wearing the white tuxedo, and it looks very similar to Sean Connery when he's wearing a white tuxedo at the beginning of Goldfinger. And at the beginning of Goldfinger, you know, Sean Connery, James Bond, goes into a nightclub. Nothing like, you know, what we have in Temple of Doom. Nothing like that lavish set and, you know, like the Broadway-level show <laughs> that we're treated to. Not that, but it's, it's the same thing. But again... What they said with this series, with Indiana Jones, is they wanted to take the Bond concept and just make it bigger and better. And and they did do it. Yeah. You know, also, we have the, the bird that's on Sean Connery's head at the beginning <laughs> of uh, Goldfinger. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's in a scuba suit underwater, and you can see this bird, you know, poking out on this helmet, you know, when he comes out and he gets rid of it. And it kind of made us think about the seagulls yeah, in Last Crusade. That's funny. And we also have, of course, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, the idol, which we have been talking about. And again, just like in Indiana Jones, the Temple of Doom, it does set the whole movie in play because he needs to run away. Because Belloc has this entire, you know, tribe you know, ready to kill him for mm -hmm. taking this idol. So he runs and he gets on a plane and then he takes off. Yeah. And Raiders of the Lost Ark, again, right there at the beginning, we establish that Indy is afraid of snakes because there is a snake. <laughs> That's true. In the back of the plane. the plane. So it's like, I, I love how they bring all these points around. Also, we have in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, we have Marcus Brody return, yes. and we also have Sala return. And that's kind of like with James Bond, how he has Money Penny and how he has Felix Leiter. Perfectly exact. I fully agree with you. Brody and Sala are very much like these recurring characters that may not be in every James Bond movie, mm -hmm. but when they show up, you're like, oh, it's, it's these guys. We know them. Right? Yeah. I think that's, that's great. And they've also given them you know, more to do. They've made them into more of a comedic duo. You know, Brody is is very funny in this. And it, it's a different characterization than a Raiders the Lost Ark. You know, this, you know, one of my favorite sequences in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is when they're captured by the Nazis and they're asking where this map is that was inside of Henry Sr.'s Grail Diary. And they say it's with Marcus Brody. And Indy, you know, totally tries to bluff the Nazis. He does a very <laughs> solid job. I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, Marcus Brody can speak seven different languages. He can blend in anywhere. He knows all the local customs, and he might have the grail already. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, and you're like, oh, wow. Then we, <laughs> Then they cut to Marcus Brody in a crowd and he's just totally befuddled and lost. He's like, does anybody speak English? <laughs> he's just wandering around no completely idea. just absolutely out of place. And it's hilarious because, yeah, this this speech that Indy gives is so good yes. that, like, you're almost believing it, too. You're like, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Right. And then we cut to him just being a complete loser. And it's so funny. And it's funny because Indy's speech convinced Henry, you know, yes. too. 
Like, because later on when they're alone, he's like, wow, Marcus sounds like, you know, we got the right guy on our team or whatever. And he's like, oh, no, he gets lost in his own museum. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have Marcus, you know, right after that introduction, immediately meets up with Sala, who is definitely the more stable of the two. And, you know, it, it's a very, it's very fun to see those two guys at work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I it was also funny, if I can say this, it's a quick one on the side. We did do the movie The Mummy fairly recently. I think it was episode 39. And I, I think we talked at that time about how it was kind of an Indiana Jones-esque movie. Right. But when we watched Last Crusade, I really saw some parallels, this kind of group of defenders of the grail who they don't really explain in great detail but it's this like group of secret you know guys who are all over the place to stop people from trying to find the grail and that really reminded me of like the um, Ardeth Bay character played by Oded Fair in The Mummy who kind of leads that group of guys who prevent people from finding Hominoptera and rediscovering the mummy. So I thought that was really interesting. Well, and those guys, you know, in this film, the protectors of the grail are very, very committed. Like they die for it. And there's this scene, the boat scene, you know, the boat chase, mm. which you talked about. I remember you saying, this is just like James Bond. It was. Yeah. yeah it, it felt James Bondy. Right. So it's like you're out on the boat. We have all this madness where we have the speedboat going between these two massive ships. Scary. And then we also have this speedboat, and it's uh, locked in this course for this huge propeller of one of these ships. Now, we actually heard in a behind-the-scenes piece that they actually took a boat, they put it on a track into this propeller where the boat was actually being destroyed while the guys were fighting at the front of the boat. And it's just like, and they're like, yeah, it's completely safe, you know? And you're just like, <laughs> and oh I'm my like, God. Well, I mean, do we want to say completely safe? I mean, they did extend the boat so that it was longer than a regular boat so that, you know, while it's getting chewed up, it is further away. And they did play with perspective. But there's still a giant propeller chopping up this boat. Yeah. There's wood flying everywhere and, you know, splintering and going all over the place. So, I don't know. I certainly wouldn't want it to be involved. No. But, you know, it turned out okay, I guess. Well, this is a good time to mention that Harrison Ford does a lot of his own stunts. Actually, his stunt double came up to him at one point and was like, hey, can you, you know, let me do something? <laughs> And Harrison Ford, people really think would be a great stuntman just as an exclusive job. But they are like, he's such a good actor. And so he does so many things in this film. You know, at the end of the movie, Indiana Jones is hanging off like a barrel on the side of this tank. And he's like going into a wall. And, uh, you know, all of this sand and debris and rocks are coming down on him. And we actually found out, you know, he was actually hanging there. And there were guys up above <laughs> just pouring the sand and the rocks and the debris on him. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it is it is nuts. Like, he decides to do a lot of his own stuff. But it works, you mm. know? I mean, and he is good at riding horses and things like that. I think his biggest problem was the hat flying off. Right, right. <laughs> because 
it kept flying off during the middle of, you know, he'd be doing a great performance or a great stunt or whatever, and the damn hat would come off. Oh, I couldn't imagine that. Like, if you're just killing it, you're like, this is the one, and then ba-boom. Oh, yeah, because you can't story. keep the stinking hat on. It's really funny. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I think we should bring up on the films, on the parallels between Last Crusade and Raiders of the Lost Ark, again with the structure. So at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's that incredible sequence when Indy is on all of those trucks. Yeah. Okay, so we have that, and then, you know, he has the rocket launcher, and he sees the Nazis, and they go to their final location, right, where we have the, the opening of the Ark of the Covenant. In this film, we have this amazing tank sequence, and then from there, they head to the final location, and when they're there, they run into the Nazis again. So it's like, it it's, they have... The, this familiar structure, um, which is really great. And also, there are just so many action sequences in this film. This one, like, really goes over the top with the chases. I mean, there's so many chases. There's, like, the motorcycle sidecar one. Yes. Which is really funny because, like, Sean Connery is, like, stuffed into this little sidecar. <laughs> and he looks so pissed in there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's really funny and like this tank one at the end is just like so crazy and it really does make you think of that truck thing from raiders um it also makes me think of like in raiders i remember like he was up on the mountain or up at the top of the canyon like looking down where they were pa where the nazis were passing through and we have the same thing here like mm -hmm. he's up on the top with sala and henry and marcus and they see, you know, the tanks passing, and, and he thinks he's out of range. And then, of course, they shoot over them and blow up the car behind them, which is hilarious. <laughs> it's like, oh, of course. Um, but it's funny because I think we've thought of Indiana Jones throughout the series as kind of being like this super cool guy who just does everything right. And in this, he he keeps getting, like, taken down and embarrassed like by different things and it's really funny well that was one of the things sean connery said about henry's relationship with his son indiana jones is that henry would have done everything first and he would have done it better including elsa <laughs> <laughs> oh forgive oh, my joke that was hilarious i <laughs> i kind of just think about like celebrity jeopardy you know <laughs> Yes, you do, Trebek. Yes, you do. Wonderful. I love it. Buckfutter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the penis mightier. Oh, I love it. So good. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, I think that that's, I mean, that's the whole perspective that Henry has. You know, he kind of feels like he was a good dad, you know, because he didn't bother him or make him do all the boring crap that parents usually make their kids do. Right. You know, and that's what he says to him, and that's his perspective, you know, because this kind of goes back to their personality types again. Like, Henry Jones, as, like, this INTP-type person, would really value the ability to have alone time and to, to pursue his own interests. So if people weren't bothering him... And he could really be digging into, like, the Grail thing, which was his thing. Yeah. That he would be happy about that. And he thought that by leaving 
Indy to do the same things, that he was doing a good thing for him. But really, Indy felt abandoned, you know, and like he wasn't cared for. And so that's, you know, that's kind of the root cause of their rift, you know. And of course, they don't really explain in detail what happened with Indy's mom, Mm -hmm. but you get the feeling that, you know, it would have been different if she could have been around. Right. And she seems to have died. But I think that, you know, it's it's really real their relationship like it feels really real it feels like an estranged father son and they still really care for each other yes you know they still really love each other but but it's like they can't talk to each other no they have a a lot of trouble communicating you know and and they kind of have this discussion during like the zeppelin scene where they start to kind of air out their grievances and their their bodies apparently and they're in the filming of it because <laughs> i guess it was a very hot set and they and sean connery said like all the extras were like wearing fur coats <laughs> and he just wasn't wearing pants because he sweats too much and if he if he wore pants they would have had to like keep stopping so he could get makeup reapplied um and so harrison ford also didn't wear pants <laughs> So I thought that was really funny (laughs) that they're having like these, they're having like these deep conversations with no pants on. (laughs) What I also like what's telling about their relationship, and this actually flips things. When they're in the plane and Indy is flying the plane and then Sean Connery is working the guns Mm -hmm. in the back, right? Sean Connery doesn't understand when Indy is telling him 11 o'clock you know, to look for an enemy, you know, at that time, just like, you know, you would look at a watch, you would say, oh, 11 o'clock is this position. He doesn't understand it. And then to take it even a step further, you know, Henry actually shoots off, you know, the tail of their own plane. (laughs) Right, right. And he doesn't own up to it. He doesn't own up to it. He's like, son, they got us. (laughs) Well, he doesn't own up to setting the the castle on fire either. Yeah. You know, Indy hands him this lighter to kind of burn the ropes. And he promptly drops it because he burns himself. I would have done that. So I I could fully relate to Henry here. You hand me like a burning thing. You're like, use this to burn the ropes. The minute that touches my skin, I'm done. Like, I'm not going (laughs) to hold a burning thing on me. No. So he drops it, and of course it's like a Zippo, so it doesn't go out. It just keeps burning. (laughs) It sets the carpet on fire. The entire room gets engulfed in flames, and it becomes a really funny scene. You know, they also have, like, the moving fireplace that rotates them around, and uh, that whole part in the castle is hilarious. And I didn't even say my favorite line, which is from before they get caught, or when they get caught, by the Nazis. (laughs) Henry has been kind of congratulating himself for sending his diary to Indy because he knew that Indy would find him and, and, you know, they could go get the grail together. And he, you know, the, the Nazis kind of break in and they're like, all right, give us the diary. And, you know, Indy's like, oh, I don't have it. What diary are you talking about? You know, he's trying to play dumb. (laughs) And, you know, Henry's like, he would never bring that here. Like, he goes to this whole thing. And then it turns out that it's right in Indy's pocket. Elsa knew this and told the guys where to look, you know, which I don't see how Indy didn't figure this out. But all the rest of us probably did. 
And Henry turns around and says, I should have mailed it to the Marx Brothers. (laughs) I got a super kick out of that. That made me laugh a ton. Oh, and his accent makes it so much better. Here, (laughs) I'll do a very poor replication of it. I should have mailed it to the Marx Brothers. (laughs) That was poor, but it was close. Yeah, it's it's, the way he hits Marx is what... The Marx Brothers. The Marx Brothers. Right, yeah. it's wonderful, and you know, again, it just makes Indy look kind of foolish. I mean, that's the whole thing. They're both very. This is a way that they're similar. They're very concerned with looking cool, you yeah. know. And when they don't look cool, they feel crappy about it, and like don't want to reveal that they made these mistakes. It's very funny. Well, it's also. I mean, this goes back to the very beginning with River Phoenix and this evil archaeologist that he entirely copied the look of. Now, this is a very old way of storytelling, I guess I want to say. Because what happens, going back to the very beginning of the film, when the police come to the Jones house, and Indy has to hand over Coronado's cross, everyone leaves, you know, the bad guys have what they need, And then this evil archaeologist is still there, and he goes, you lost today, kid, but that doesn't mean you have to like it. And then he takes the hat off of his head, and he puts it on Indy's head. Yeah. So it's very strange, because I don't really feel like we have villains that have... I don't know, any caring or admirable qualities. You know, that a villain is a villain. Do, do you understand? Like, I don't feel that we see that as much anymore. No. It's like we're trying to see something good in this in this person. And you can tell that the, this archaeologist, this evil archaeologist is like, oh, he's a good kid. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's yeah, it, it says something about how much... Indy needed a father figure that this guy, you know, honestly would have killed him to get what he needed. He doesn't care, you know, that he actually, you know, found the father figure in this. Mm -hmm. And also, again, the name, you know, Indiana was, of course, the name of their dog. Which we find out at the very end of the movie. Right. You know, after they've been through all this stuff with the grail, Indy has saved his father's life with the grail water, you know, and then Henry has returned the favor Mm -hmm. by pulling Indy out of there, which I wanted to quickly say is very interesting to me as a comment on Henry's character because getting the grail has been his whole life. Yes. You know, as much as Elsa says, like, she wants it and she would do anything for it, and that, you know, Indy is the same way, I would have thought that Henry would be that way. You know, he's devoted his entire life to this object. And yet, when the place is coming down, he doesn't care about that. He cares about saving himself, saving his son, you know, because that's what's important to him. And then they go out and we hear, we call the dog Indiana (laughs) and it's the best. And then he also puts like a hanky on his head because he's lost his hat, which is like such a dad move. I feel like he could have put like, you know, socks and sandals on or something. It would have been like a similar kind of a, a, a look. And then they ride off into the sunset, which is awesome. 
Yeah, Marcus leads the charge. <laughs> he almost falls off the horse. <laughs> I love this version of Marcus. I think yes. Denholm Elliott like killed it, mm-hmm. and you could tell that he was having fun. You yes. know, he was really enjoying it, and that's what I really liked. Well, when they ride off into the sunset together, I feel it is just the perfect ending to the original trilogy. As much as I was sad that it was over, I remember being in the movie theater and seeing this and just being blown away at the spectacle and how wonderful it was. It, it, it's just there's such a good feeling here. When you have a repaired relationship, you know, it just feels great. It's felt great to me since I was a kid and I couldn't even fully understand the dynamics, yeah. you know, of the relationships. When something is made whole again, man, and, and then they go off into the sunset. I mean, that's, you don't get more, you know, serial or more cowboy than that. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Well, and at the same time, you know, it wraps up the emotional piece of this movie in a way that I don't think we had really seen in the other films in the series so far. No. Like, you know, I do think that the relationship with Marion was very much more deep than what we're seeing here. But at the same time, you know, we revisit that later, like in Crystal Skull that comes back. Right. You know, but here the relationship with Henry is a lot different than any other relationship we've ever seen Indy have. Mm-hmm. So this movie, while it has even more action, like everything is more over the top, more exciting, more, more, more of everything. We also have this whole emotional arc that we haven't had before. And it's explored really well, really deeply. And in the, you know, the background kind of info that we watch, the making of, we see that that was really what Steven Spielberg cared about the most in this movie and I can feel that because I feel like he devoted the time that it needed. He didn't gloss over anything and every part of the movie even these action scenes is really based around their relationship. The whole tank charge you know is because Henry is in that tank you know and Indy's going of course he's going to do this anyway but the emotional weight to that is that he's trying to save his dad too so, you know, I think they did such a good job putting those things together and making that relationship the center of this movie and the thing that needed a resolution even more than the Grail story. I just, I love that. That's what makes this the one for me out of the Indiana Jones movies. I just think as much as I love all the others, this has like that emotional core to it that I was missing or that I wanted more of. And it's handled just perfectly. And and this is why it makes it my number one pick. If we were like, oh, let's watch an Indiana Jones movie. This one stands alone for me. I can see why. I mean, this really makes you feel like the Jones group is a family. You know? Henry Sr., Henry Jr., Sala. Yeah. You know? And of course, and of Marcus, course Marcus Brody. Yeah. So it, it's like these are... The family, you know, these four guys make up this core group that that feels like a family. It feels like, you know, you could catch these guys playing poker, you know, (laughs) you would just come in and you would feel great about it. And I think the reason that it comes across so well in this film is Sean Connery at this point 
you know, he's in his 50s, but in the 80s, he really knocked it out of the park in a lot of films. This is when, you know, in the 80s, he won Best Supporting Actor for Untouchables. Mm, You know? So it's like he was just, he was gearing up. And so he had all of these performances that he was stacking up in Highlander. He's great in Highlander. Just let's pretend his name is Sean Connery in it. But you know what I mean? So, But, you know, it's just like he has all of these standout performances where you want more. You know, the the following year, I believe, was The Hunt for Red October, right? You know, and it's just we kept going. And then into the 90s, he gave us The Rock, yeah. right, with Nicolas Cage. So, I mean, he had a lot to give in the tank, Yeah. you know, towards, you know, the end of his career. And at that point, that wasn't particularly common, I don't think, for an older man to to be front and center like that. Not one who had been like an action star. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's there's always like older actors who have like this gravitas and they do serious things or whatever. But for a guy who really was like this knock around action star, Mm -hmm. like Harrison Ford was at this time, but like 20 years earlier... To kind of go back and do a movie like this and then continue to do movies like this where he still kind of brings that same sensibility to a part of an older man. I think that's really cool. His last film was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Which is another kind of action movie. Alan Quartermain. I mean, that's... I mean, you know, I mean, he he was on top until the end and his performance in this was fantastic. And you could see the work and the care that he put into each and every beat. Yeah. I believed everything that he said, and it was so strong. And Harrison Ford in the 80s also really riding high, right? big time, yeah. Right? We came off of Witness. Wow, right? You know, we came off of Mosquito Coast. Han Solo. Of course. (laughs) All these Indiana Jones movies. I Mm -hmm. mean, he, you know, they had to print more money just to pay him (laughs) to be in these movies. It's you had. Yeah, you had like the perfect pairing at the perfect time. Mm -hmm. They were able to finally marry Indiana Jones and James Bond properly in a film, (laughs) you know, because Indiana Jones was born out of James Bond. And literally, what do we see? The original on screen James Bond, who was the favorite of Steven Spielberg, is literally the father of Indiana Jones. It brings everything around full circle, and then you're able to much more clearly see all these beautiful parallels that they set up. That's great. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And yeah, I mean, I just don't think they could have done it without Connery. Mm-mm. Because of the James Bond thing, because of like the his acting ability, and you know, I even think they said that you know he was really smart with history. Like he brought a lot of historian knowledge to the role as well. And it just is like this perfect thing that yeah. just, it worked. Like it just worked so good. And that, you know, I didn't see these until much later in life. I had talked about this before. You know, I didn't see Indiana Jones when they came out. I didn't see these movies when they came out. I saw them much later. And when I saw this one, I was just like, oh, that's got to be everybody's favorite one, you know. And then I kind of found out I was standing alone on that. But. You know, and I think this episode has kind of been me, like, trying to prove it, you know, the whole time that this is, like, such a great movie. But it really proves itself. It's a great movie. I love this one. It is. 
it's fun. It brings so much fun. And, you know, it's all, it's still got the action and the adventure, but it also has like this emotional core and it's fun. And I just think it's so watchable and rewatchable because of that. Well, and it's so funny. There, there was a conscious choice to make this one funnier because the Temple of Doom film is very serious. And this, you know, we still have the great action from the first two films, but we have more of a comedic sensibility. And it's really nice. It's a really nice balance. And then we bring our family story. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Can I say that I like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade more than Raiders of the Lost Ark? I don't know. I, I think I'm going to say in the end, and this is a major cop-out, I'm sure, it's a tie, you know, <laughs> because I love both of these movies. That's I love okay. both of these movies. And Sean Connery in this, you know, I always liked Sean Connery. I always liked his performances. But this last time through, I really completely understood his contribution to the film. Yeah, and how just, yeah, it's just, it's so important that it was Sean Connery in so many ways, not the least of which is that mega James Bond parallel. Yeah. Um, which is why we spent so much time talking about that. You know, it's funny. We got to the fourth week of the sequel series and we were trying to think, you know, which movie are we going to pick? And we had a lot that we were looking at. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they all seemed like they could be a good choice. But then we just kept being like, oh, I don't know, you know, I just don't know if this is the one. Mm -hmm. We probably thought about this way too much. I mean, <laughs> we probably spent more time discussing that than we spent discussing this movie. Because <laughs> it was just so important to us to pick the right one. And I think that we did it. Like, I was resistant to this one because we just very recently, you know, it hasn't even been 10 episodes <laughs> since we did Raiders. But... You know, this movie is a standalone sequel. It is a straight-to-the-sequel movie. This is one of these movies where the sequel is, you know, just as important to me as any other movie in the series, including the original. I'm glad that we had already talked about Raiders before Same. we talked about this, because... It's so much fun to watch this with a knowledge of Raiders. You can watch it by itself and enjoy it too, but getting all the callbacks, it's kind of like the Easter eggs thing, you know? It's kind of like you feel special when you can point out something and say, oh, that's from the first movie, or oh, look how similar that is to the first movie. And it's just so much fun, and I'm really glad that we ended up picking this one. Me too. I think it's a perfect way to end it. It's such a high note. It's such a great feeling. And I do feel like all of our discussions, all of our <laughs> lists, you know, paid off with, with doing this. And again, this has been, you know, this Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, ILM train that we've been on. Yeah. I've been loving this ride, yeah. you know, and I really feel like this was just like the perfect cherry on top for this. I fully agree. It's also the last movie... The, or the the only movie out of the, the picks that we had that is not the second in the series, it's the third. But I just, it just is the right one. It was the right one to finish. And we're going to ride off into the sunset <laughs> with everybody on our straight to the sequel series. So for October, as we turn our minds toward horror movies, <laughs> how can they be comforting? Well, for us, they certainly are because we rewatch them all the time. Um, 
we decided to look at one of our very favorite horror directors, John Carpenter. And we're going to look at several of his movies. Not even going to put a number on it because we'll find (laughs) out. A lot of discussions. Once again, what will be included? But what we want to tell you is these are horror films. These are John Carpenter directed horror films. He did other films that I would consider action or adventure, other types of movies. We're going to focus on horror because it's scary season. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's great. We'll probably do others in the future because, boy, we love this guy. But he's great. (laughs) Next week, we're going to start it off with They Live. Yes. And we cannot wait. So join us next time for They Live to kick off our John Carpenter horror series. Yes, it will be at least the month of October. And will it be past that? We'll find out. We'll find out. All right. All right. Thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoyed the Straight to the Sequel series and our discussion of Last Crusade. Jump on our socials. Follow us. Talk to us. Tell us what you like. Give us a review. If you like, go read our essays on our website. We got all kind of stuff for you to do if you still need a little jolt of John and Georgia. (laughs) So we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us and stay comfy. Stay comfy.